The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, a Venice Biennale special. Artists talk about pavilions and representing nations. We review the main show and pick out some of the highlights. And we look at a Bellini masterpiece in a Venetian church. It's the biggest biennial in the world of art. We're in Venice this week and we'll try to give you a flavour of this year's Biennale, which, as ever, brings a deluge of art to the historic Italian city. I talked to four artists in the national pavilions. Francis Elise in the Belgian pavilion, Sonia Boyce in the British pavilion, Shubigi Rao in the Singapore pavilion and Na Chankwa Reindorf in the Ghana pavilion about their presentations and how, if at all, they relate to the idea of nationhood. Louisa Buck, Jane Morris and I review the main exhibition, The Milk of Dreams curated by Cecilia Alemani. And finally, while most visitors to Venice this week are immersed in contemporary art, the art historian Ben Street and I stopped off in a church to look at a lake painting by the Renaissance artist Giovanni Bellini. A reminder that to keep up with all the art newspaper's reports from Venice, you can download our app for iOS and Android, which you can find in the App Store or Google Play. And do subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, when the late Okwi Mwezo curated the Venice Biennale in 2015, he told me that the national pavilions in the Giardini and Arsenale at the eastern end of Venice offered a chance to explore the fantasies and the desires that many of us carry about our place in the world. In his text about the Biennale that year, Mwezo described the Giardini's ramshackle assemblage of pavilions as the ultimate site of a disordered world of national conflicts as well as territorial and geopolitical disfigurations. So how have artists grappled with the somewhat dubious idea of representing their nation in what's been called the art world's Olympics. I spoke to four artists presenting their work in pavilions from different parts of the world about their projects and how, if at all, national identity is manifested in them. I started in the Giardini, the garden at the end of the Castello district with purpose-built national pavilions. First off, I spoke to Francis Elise, a Belgian-born artist who's been based in Mexico since the 1980s. In the Belgian pavilion, Elise is showing the nature of the game, a series of paintings and several video works capturing children playing games everywhere from Mexico to Belgium via the Democratic Republic of Congo, Afghanistan and Hong Kong. Francis, I wanted to begin by asking you about nationhood because obviously you live in Mexico, you have been in surveys of Mexican art and here you are in the Belgian pavilion. Mm -hmm. How much does it at all come into your mind when you are asked to make a presentation in the Belgian pavilion about the nation that you came from, about the nation that you live in etc.? I think the, the, the concept of nation is, is obviously quite a, a complex one in my case. To start with, even my Belgian identity is somewhat hybrid, being born in the Flemish side, brought up in a French-speaking family, but within a Dutch part of the, the country, and then moving to Mexico and eventually ending up producing a lot of works a little bit all over the, the planet so if you could say that the simple fact that I'm showing in the context of the Belgian Pavilion uh, children games could also be seen as a sort of personal journey back to my own childhood which did take place in Belgium 
and which is uh, definitely for as much as I spent most of my life outside of Belgium by now is the mold so I mean I think it's a funny sort of coming uh, like a circular sort of story when it comes to Belgium it goes back to my own childhood and those children games are you know a lot of them are uh, games that I, I played as a child if you want there's a Another uh, element that came to mind when I was uh, asked to present a project for the, the Belgian Pavilion is that th this series of children games is something I've started many years ago, but I always had in mind this extraordinary painting by uh, Peter Bruegel, the elder of the mm. children games. Mm. And it's always been a really strong reference and source of inspiration along my own sort of investigation So I thought, okay, why not? I mean, Belgian Pavilion, Children's Games, Bruegel, Childhood, why not? Let's go for it. Um, while we're on the subject of historical art, I noticed the presence of a Piero by Vato in uh, one of the, one of the uh, tiny paintings. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. It's a small kind of collage painting I did when I first went to Kabul in, in 2010. And I think it was a little bit because as part of our journey, the question was spoken or unspoken can art change the world can art challenge the world can art make the world a better place and somehow that image of Pierrot was such an innocent image in the context of the some ruined suburbs of uh, Kabul uh, happened and I sort of have been carrying along that little painting along different shows here and there over the last decade mm. it became a little bit like a fetish image companion The idea of innocence is something which is delightfully present throughout the show. Mm -hmm. But of course, you set just the very name of the places that you have filmed these games happening in. They conjure up all sorts of very uninnocent thoughts about war-torn countries, about colonialism, etc. Mm -hmm. Obviously, those are present in your mind when you did this. But to what extent? And I wonder how mm. carefully you thought about, if you like, the geographical makeup, the balance of the show in terms of the locations that you were filming in. No, I think some games have, have immediate relation with the surrounding uh, sort of circumstances of sometimes extreme circumstances uh, the place is going through. The, the game of the children playing with broken mirrors yeah. in the abandoned cities housing projects on the Mexico-US border due to the narco-violence. I mean, it's just a way of how the children assimilate the reality of the adult world uh, through play and try to integrate it and come to terms with it uh, simply. I mean, I think they say that if adults are trying to process traumas through speech, uh, children will do it through play. And there's several examples. Uh, there's another game which I filmed, which is not in this show, in Mosul, where a group of teenagers are playing football in the absence of a ball. There's no ball. They just reenact the ritual of playing football, but... As football had been forbidden by the Islamic State, there's no ball. Which is a sort of respond to an absurd imposition through an absurd act. And several games have that sort of dimension. Some others are simply innocent. But I think all of them are featuring one specific element, nature of the childhood spectrum. The game of the, the jump rope, you know, the, the skills it takes is, is incredible if you take the one of the Zango, the girls playing it's a food game it's all about duels it's like combats and it's not that it's a, a conscious criteria to choose this or that game because it's going to 
feature this or that aspect of childhood, but it's they naturally come out while we film the game and while we try to uh, edit and give the best possible representation of the game through the final video. Somehow, one particular aspect of childhood stands out. I mean, uh, or another one is endurance or stubbornness. In the case of the kids pushing the wheel up and down the hill, etc. I mean, you name it. Yeah, that's right. There's so many different human characteristics that Mm -hmm. are visible running through the works. But also there's this wonderful sonic dimension to the work. To me, it was immediately like walking into a school playground when you enter and there's this cacophony of actually quite joyous noise, actually. No, it's it's, it's important that as soon as you step in the pavilion, in this case, you're unconsciously brought back into that space of your own childhood. It's also an attempt of reminding to us adults who we were as children and eventually what our dreams were and are and what became of us. Did we square with our dreams of a childhood? Is our adulthood faithful to that image we projected? I mean, for me, it's a, it's a constant sort of way of measuring my own projects, my own process and recess in the projects. It's really to go revisit that space of childhood, and that's where I can measure where I'm at. It seems to me that also it's very crucial in that sense that in almost all the works one sees the child's point of view as well as a sort of objective, Mm -hmm. distant point of view. So Mm -hmm. we see the game taking place, but we're often with the child. It's almost like we're seeing with the child's eyes. That's good. I'm glad you said that. Certainly what we're trying to suggest that can become one of the players, if you want. Whether we succeed or not, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm discovering these games. Uh, they were produced uh, very recently. Uh, lastly, I wanted to ask again about the paintings and their role in the show, because they set a kind of context. When it came down to choose, OK, I mean, my, my language is both through video, painting, animation. Uh, so I thought, yes, it's important to maintain that sort of duality. Uh, the only criteria behind selection of those images is that some children in general appear in the images that were if the children games videos were produced over the last two years at the most uh, not even the paintings cover a much longer span of career I mean the first one is from 97 I think Mm. the last one is 2021 so that gives a much larger journey over my own uh, production as an artist surprisingly uh, I can't say that there's been so much evolution <laughs> in the language. I mean, I'm surprised to see how similar some of the last ones are to the first ones. I think it's partly because those images were done as personal souvenirs. They, they were never meant to become a series. They were never meant even to be uh, on, the, on the wall of a, an exhibition. The souvenirs I'm mm-hmm. doing, which I've put together because they happen to have children in them and somewhat they haven't been seen. And they say something about my approach but they also have a little bit the same function as filming the children games can have in the sense that for me filming children games is very often the entry point when I'm invited to produce a project somewhere I mean uh, it's a very easy way of making contact by inviting the children to show me okay what are the games you play here it tells you a lot about uh, local cultural codes what, what can you film what can't you film how do children and adults react to the presence of the camera Doing those little plein air landscape or cityscapes is somewhat similar because when you start sitting down in a public space and you start drawing, people will come to you, in particular children, 
It's a little bit the inverted relation of the photographer where people may shy away. Children will naturally come, adults will come and look and uh, the most daring ones will take your pencils and start uh, <laughs> scribbling as well. It's all about making contact and then from there possibly a conversation uh, can start. Next, I spoke to Sonia Boyce, whose installation Feeling Her Way is in the British Pavilion. Boyce is the first black British woman to appear in the pavilion in Venice, and as we'll hear, her presentation includes videos of five British singers of colour, surrounded by sculptures and Boyce's bespoke wallpaper. It also includes a section focusing on the devotional collection, Boyce's ever-growing archive of black British female musicians, here represented by six months collecting of CDs, records and tapes of various performers, from the 1980s band Five Star to the evergreen chanteurs Shirley Bassey. Sonia, I wanted to start by talking about the devotional because it's not the first room that you see in the exhibition. It's actually around the back of the pavilion, but it's absolutely at the heart of it, isn't it? Yeah, so the devotional project is actually what the rest of Feeling Her Way kind of springs from. It's a really long-term project that I've been doing since 1999, where, just to give you a little bit of narrative about that, uh, the devotional project started in Liverpool. FACT, which is the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology, before they had a building, an art space, they had a a kind of off-site programme where they would invite artists to work with a a specific community um, within Liverpool, and I was partnered with Liverpool Black Sisters. And I was there to kind of facilitate them in the co-production of an artwork. And what I wanted the group to do was to just to start to kind of name some black British female singers that they knew they'd grown up with. And in the very first session, it was really, in some ways, quite excruciating. It took us about 10 minutes before anyone could remember any black British female singers. And it wasn't until Shirley Bassey, someone remembered her, that we all just thought, oh, yes, of course. And then names started to flow. But I think the group felt really quite embarrassed by their own amnesia. And so they went and asked friends and family and colleagues about, oh, can you remember anybody? So by the end of what was meant to be a six-month project, by the end of that six months, we gathered about 46 names. And then, for some reason, this was totally unplanned, it seemed to kind of catch on. I like to call it the way in which kind of gossip can travel. You know, one person saying, mention it to another person, then it kind of comes back round. And so people started to send me names after the project. And then they started to give me vinyl records, cassettes, CDs, memorabilia that they had that they, you know, either just thought they wanted to contribute to the project or they wanted to, yeah, pass on so it continued to have a life. So now 20 three years down the road and there's over 350 named now musicians it's beyond singers it's black female musicians in the British music industry Uh, so now 350 names that date back to the mid 19th century to the present day so it was out of this wealth and it's very much about collective knowledge building really there's been a few times when I've dipped into the, the collection which is ever growing to make artworks that kind of come from that. And so I thought, well, actually, this is a really good moment to return to that project because I've done lots of other things in between. And for the last few years, I've had a kind of fantasy in my head about bringing together my fantasy girl band, which is where I'd actually have singers actually doing something very specific for me. 
So that's what we see in the rest of the pavilion, effectively. Yes. So in the very first room, there are these four musicians. One is Evelyn Wallen, who's a composer. Then there's Jackie Dankworth. There's Poppy Judah, And there's Tanita Tikaram. And they agreed. You know, we kind of went through a process of having list. And all of this was, of course, happening during the moment of various lockdowns. They had intended to be, in the one session, five performers. But Sophia Jernberg, who's in room three wasn't able to travel to the UK during all of the various travel restrictions. And they are gathered at Abbey Road Studios in London, these four musicians. And the very first room is me. I've asked them to improvise. So there's no script. And what Erin Wallen was able to do beautifully was to draw out a, a kind of dialogue between the three singers. This was the first time they'd met. We'd had, like a week or so before, we'd had a one-hour Zoom where there was a lot of anxiety because the three singers are known as soloists. So singing together is a big deal. Yeah, they've got very distinctive voices, haven't they? Very strong, distinctive voices, very different kinds of voices. But not only that, but also they'd never improvised. So it was like, they would say, well, what do you want, Sonia? And say, well, I just want you to do what you do and converse with each other through your voices and see what your voices do. And so Erilyn was able to draw that out of them and to take them out of their comfort zone into this other space of exploring what they could do with their voice and particularly saying to them, you don't have to make a beautiful sound. And I think that was really key, that actually just see what your voice can do and how you can have a a kind of dialogue with each other like through singing. It's a big challenge. Something that strikes me is that it's like a series of recording booths and there's one in which there's a kind of duet, a kind of abstract duet, and then there's others which are more individual and there are moments where they appear to sing in tune in the same key. But actually that's all chance, right? It's all chance. So there are actually ten films. Hopefully it feels a bit lighter than the idea of going into a space that's got ten films in them. That they're all different lengths. So, you know, you come back in now and there's a different arrangement because of the different lengths. They all loop. So there's a different kind of convergence at different moments. I like to call it beautiful noise. That is hopefully quite immersive for the viewer um, as you move from room to room. That the sound doesn't respect things like barriers and boundaries and things like that, which I love that you can move from room to room. You can hear the others, but as you enter each room, you're in that space with that singer. Around that, you've got the geometric wallpaper, and then you've also got these golden sculptures. What are the sources for those, and how do they relate to the videos? Uh, You know, one of the things that's, I suppose, quite difficult for people to kind of properly picture is that because I don't know what's going to happen, or I have an inkling of something being interesting. So for quite a while, for about two or three years now, I've been looking at this thing called pyrite, sometimes called fool's gold, which comes out of the earth in perfect geometric shapes. So it's not that it's chiseled, it's like when it comes out of the ground, it comes out as this perfectly formed geometric abstract shape. And I love that. I really love that that's what it does. But also what's interesting is the fact that as pyrite its other name is false gold. So it's almost like that somehow it's an imposter to gold, that it's not quite gold. Actually, it does have gold in it as a mineral. It literally does have gold in it, and that's used in many aspects of our technology, for instance. But 
I was really intrigued by the shape and by its relationship to certain kinds of formalist abstract sculpture. And so the wallpaper is a kind of tessellating geometric template, which is the same template in all of the rooms, but with different images from the day of filming dropped in as a repeat pattern. So you've got that. And in some ways it's quite jagged and it really plays with the space. And then the seating, which is covered in a kind of gold vinyl, is super reflective. So it reflects everything else that's in the room in quite fractured ways. So the sculpture is seating, and I know also people were having lots of trouble thinking, well, what, you know, is it sculpture? Is it an artwork? Is it furniture? Where does it lie? And it's actually both, and I'm wanting to encourage audiences to feel that they can come and sit on these objects, that they see themselves in it as you move around the entire exhibition, including the gold wallpaper that exists as you enter and in the back room, that constantly the audience is being implicated in the work as they move around. I'm hoping that that is even more emphasised when we reach the fourth room with the gold wallpaper and the gold that supports all this memorabilia from the devotional collection, that people recognise performers that they will have heard or may have heard of, that they themselves are somehow in this. It was an attempt to do a gentle way of how to bring people in, given COVID, not wanting to do something where safety would be compromised, that there's a way in which audiences are brought in. When you do a presentation for the British Pavilion, there's a sort of expectation that you've got to deal in some way with nationhood and whether you should confront it head on and how front and centre should it be. But with you, it's actually just already there, isn't it? It's already there and it has been in the project. And of course, all of those performers have connections to places outside of the UK. Close to the Giardini is the Arsenale, a sprawling series of industrial buildings where Venice's great imperial armada was once constructed. The national pavilions are dotted about in different parts of the Arsenale, including the Sale d'Armi, where the Venetian Republic's armaments were kept. It's here that I went to talk to Shubigi Rao, the artist in the Singapore Pavilion. Her project, Pulp 3, a short biography of the banished book, looks at the censorship and destruction of books and libraries in the form of a 90-minute documentary-style video made over five years, a book and a hand-drawn map called Being a Brief Guide to the Banished Book. Shubigi, to what extent does Singapore as a place, as a nation, figure in your presentation at the Pavilion? Well, I've been living in Singapore for 20 years. I'm a citizen there now, of course, and it's important to note that even though I was a practicing artist before I came to Singapore, the genesis of this work is in Singapore. And I think that the tone of my practice, the way my method has been shaped... I think in many ways it's because of what it means to be diaspora, I think, that's one. But also, I think it's very interesting how Singapore sort of embraced the way I work. The first thing that occurred to me when I came to Singapore was that I was, I noticed this, I was treated as a human first and female second. So just the sheer burden of constant misogyny that I faced in India growing up, that not being present was already very liberating. And the second thing I found was that I could, under the umbrella of the term artist, do anything I wanted. So I did everything from dabble in pseudoscience, neuroscience. I wrote papers. I started writing fake art history books. I mean, I worked with a variety of media, really. And I think that only under the label of the artist could I be all these variable things. And so I think in many ways, my ethos 
is my own, yes, but my artistic method has been shaped by Singapore. How does the idea of nation figure in the work? Quite prominently, actually, because the work does question all forms of authority, and that naturally should include statehood and the relationship with the state. And since I'm originally from India, and I've grown up in multiple parts of India, but primarily in the north, in the Himalaya mainly, I grew up also very close to the border with Tibet and Nepal. And I saw firsthand as a very young child, the effects of war, of civil unrest as well, because the Gurkha National Liberation Front was also very active in the place I was growing up in. But I also saw Tibetan refugees coming over with their children and their manuscripts. It was a very early lesson for me in A, the fact that you can be disenfranchised and um, made stateless very easily. And of course, as a child, you do not articulate it in these terms, but the power of that lesson remains with you. And it's only later as an adult that you put in words, or as an artist, you put it in the form of film or so on. And the other thing I realize is that one of the things that people do to resist that form of erasure, that form of dispossession, um, disenfranchisement and removal of everything, being stripped of land, home, nationhood, citizenship, one of the things people do to resist that is, A, they save their children because that ensures the continuity of their community. And the second thing they do is they save their culture, their manuscripts, if they have access to them, their books, their texts. They save their artifacts, their photo albums. These are the, their letters, recipe books. Just, we've seen it again and again. You see it with refugees right now from Ukraine. You see it across the world. And this is something that it's in front of our eyes all the time and we don't always put a name to it. But in my project, as you know, it's called Pulp 3, a short biography of the banished book. It's short because it's only a 10-year-long project. And 10 years is not enough to address issues like this. But it's also the banished book and it's a biography because it's the book personified. And the book is a stand-in really for humanity. And it's dispossessed humanity and banished humanity. So while overtly the project may seem to be about books and libraries and the banishment and destruction of them, it's really about our species' propensity for violence. And when we talk about violence, we have to also examine, as I mentioned earlier, our relationship with authority figures. And I think that's another thing that I was able to address in much more nuanced terms only after I moved to Singapore. Because in India, my experience growing up was with violence. There were too many encounters with violence in multiple forms, too many to go into here perhaps. But in Singapore, I learned that there are covert forms as well. And how does one covertly also resist? I mean, and that, I think, forms part of my artistic method. That connection between books and people is something you draw very close attention to in the video because I'm conscious that we see hands almost caressing books, for instance. You see people talking about the burning of libraries, for instance. It's inextricably bound, and you want to make that connection, don't you? Absolutely. I think that one notable thing also that's present in the film, which you cannot show in a book as clearly, because it's only a retelling sometimes. But in a film, I can remove myself, and the camera is merely the means by which the, the person being filmed can speak directly to the viewer. And sometimes, as you saw from the film, it's not necessary to show someone's face. You don't need to empathize with someone simply because you can see their expression. And, you know, we tend to resonate with people through the stories they tell us and also by looking them in the face when they do. But I feel that hands do betray a certain amount of unspoken or repressed emotion and you can see it very often like you mentioned the way people caress books there's one moment in the film where uh, someone who used to censor words on television unsuitable words that belong to a, a language that new nation wanted to disassociate from even though both languages they claim they're separate languages, but it's the same. It's Serbo-Croat, really. used to be one language, but in newly independent Croatia, after the dissolution of, of Yugoslavia, decided to expunge every Serbian word. So she was given the task of removing these words. And, I mean, she talks about it in critical terms, but you can also see that 
there's a moment when she says that I knew what a Serbian word is and I wouldn't use it because it means you don't understand the beauty of your own language. I find that very telling and the way her hands, they're flipping through a book and then they suddenly stop. It's a, it's a very telling moment right there. So I do understand what you mean when you say there's an inextricable relationship between people, the way they, they hold and use books. I've seen that on a number of occasions as well. And very often when I'm interviewing people who are important person, heads of libraries or, or you know, they're prominent or influential people, they'll sit with a wall of books behind them, but they never touch any of them. <laughs> and again, also very telling. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, books are about identities, as you said, in yes. so many different ways, aren't they? And one of the things that I'm really conscious of is that even in the actually relatively short part of the film that I've seen, we were dealing with multiple nations. It's It's a huge geographic spread and that seems to me again important yes and 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 also connects very much to venice and and i know that you've wanted to make that connection between singapore and venice but also venice and the book and venice as a center from which the book traveled that's absolutely right thank you i'd like to first address the idea of geographical spread as well i'm very indiscriminate in the way i look for stories the whole thing is built word of mouth i travel alone and i just meet people who then introduce me to other people a lot of them are very bemused and wary at first by this strange asian woman traveling halfway across the world talk to them and she doesn't come with any institutional backing and she doesn't use any form of intimidation in terms of you know saying she's she's come with some authority with some i don't use any of that it's really just me getting to disarm people and getting them to trust me because i don't work with the crew they open up to me as a lone stranger I'm sure they do regret it <laughs> sometimes in which case you'll see redacted portions in the book by the way right. so a big part of solo travel is as I said it's word of mouth so people I speak to then recommend for other people and so on I'll travel wherever the stories take me and you'll also notice in the film it's very deliberate at no point in the film is it very clearly indicated where it's being filmed where this person's from I mean you can tell sometimes from the language they choose to speak in and sometimes they of course refer to the place because it's contextually important. But a member of the press actually asked me about this. Why didn't you just write it's from Antwerp? This is in Antwerp and is this library, you know? I need to know that information. I said, no, actually you don't. Because that's a way of saying, oh, look, this could only happen there. This can't happen where I'm from. And you can continue to feel smug about what you think is your civilization's love of culture and your acts of preservation. And you can deny the fact that this can happen and has probably happened historically in your backyard. And I wanted to collapse this idea that all these, these stories come from different pockets across the world because there is a universality to these ideas which is that there are people who resist oppression and destruction of culture and there are forces which are always aligned against cultural production open access free speech the stories of people from the margins i mean you have this constantly playing out and it plays out very often hand in hand with the genocide of people now the reason i mention this is because venice and singapore as you said both used to be centers of print and print culture historically very different trajectories of course and different ways in which they function venice has often been lauded as a center for it's a place where you could print things that couldn't be printed elsewhere in europe but that's not the whole story also the inquisition was here as well and i've spoken to librarians here who've shown me books that were banned in venice they showed me the stamps and it's really interesting how that doesn't often get spoken about the index librorum prohibitorum the catholic church's list of banned books and people was an influential text here as well and one that was frequently referred to so when we see a center for print and a place where print flourished yes that's part of the story of course venice of course is the birthplace of the paperback which meant that there was a more egalitarian access to print but the link between singapore and venice is interesting and yes i do try and find resonances between them but i don't force it either i think one of the things about filming one of the dangers of filming is that in the editing process you can remove original context 
and create links where none exist. I know that can be a really beautiful artistic enterprise, but I also like the idea of staying a little true to the core of the stories. Lastly, I wondered, to what extent is this in some way autobiographical? It's definitely to a certain extent autobiographical in the sense that almost every work that one makes, whether as an artist, writer, filmmaker, etc., is, whether we like it or not, unconsciously autobiographical. Sometimes it's in the choices we make about the people we decide to keep in the narrative and also which ones gain more prominence over others and so on. So sometimes it's there in the way we order certain things. The stories we think resonate with us the most are the ones that we will then present to the viewer or the reader. And of course there's an autobiographical aspect in the method and in the choices but in the case of my project I'm always unsure actually how to phrase this because it's very easy for this to become a one-note thing. I didn't start this project because my family library was destroyed, but it definitely plays a part in it. And this library of my family was really just, uh, it was scavenged books that my parents collected over decades really, starting from the late 60s. And it was, in a sense, my third parent. <laughs> I grew up ensconced in this very eclectic library and with reading everything from the words of like sort of 18th century naturalists to gazettes written by civil servants to random texts on the occult. But I also read all the religious books and translations of them mixed up with books of mythology. All that did was also inoculate me against subscribing to any one ism because I think if you read indiscriminately you're listening to the words of people in a really pluralistic sense I know it's a very overused word but I shall use it here and what happens is then you feel yourself included in part of a larger understanding of humanity so even as a girl growing up in a very isolated part of the Himalaya with not very many friends but I never felt alone or lonely because I felt like I was included in this readership. It was only much later that I realized that I'm not really the ideal reader in the minds of a lot of the writers I admired who turned out to be either raving misogynists or just plain assholes. Um, <laughs> but I did, however, at the moment of reading, feel very included and embraced by the texts. And I think that to me was what I meant when I said third parent because parenting is not about educating or imparting lessons. It's about just making a child feel that they have a place in this world and that they have responsibilities to this world. This project in a sense is also autobiographical because it revisits that old idea of mine where I always wanted to find what I could do to resist that feeling of powerlessness that children always have against what they perceive as injustice. Just along from the Salé d'Army is the Isolotto, a warehouse where more national presentations are housed. It's here that Ghana is showing its pavilion, Black Star, the museum as freedom. Among the artists is Na Chankwa Reindorf, and I caught up with her just as the finishing touches were being made to the pavilion. Now, the Ghana pavilion... Yes has this sort of overarching theme around the Black Star, which is very directly connected to Ghanaian identity. It's literally in the flag yes. and etc. As an artist, do you come at the work in a kind of direct way to confront that symbol or how do you address it? I think it happened a bit more organically. This work that I'm showing here, I've been working on it for a couple of years now. And so this is basically, I guess, a continued iteration of what I've been developing over the past two years. But at the basis of everything, I'm really sort of inspired heavily by the visual culture coming out of Ghana. So there is that element of being inspired by where I'm coming from, but maybe it's a bit more subtle. I think if people sort of identify or are familiar with some of like the things that I'm referencing, maybe it's, it's more easy to sort of see where I'm coming from. But I think it's more conceptual than visual right. in the way the work shows itself. And in terms of that 
connection to Ghana. One of the interesting things is it seems to me, and it's very much something that's happening right across this Biennale, it's a, there's a lot of time shifting. Right. And, and yours is very much looking to the past and yes. in a way reinventing it for yes, now. Exactly. And I think it all sort of stems from the fact that I do sort of live between Accra and the States. And a pivotal part of like my practice being developed to the point where it is right now was because I was away from home that I was, I think, able to see things from a more, I don't know, objective point of view and sort of question tradition. How did these things happen? Why did they happen the way they do? Who is really involved in these things? And how can I, as a woman, as a Ghanaian woman, as a black African artist, insert myself into the narrative? And maybe not necessarily critique anything but sort of just create a new way of thinking about or looking at things I think is sort of like the basis of what I'm trying to do with my work and there's these Asafo textile pieces yes. that you use as the sort of basis the sort of yeah. trigger for your work right effectively. I was really sort of interested in the concept of a flag you know representing people you know every country has a flag you know the whole idea of this sort of insignia or ensign of sorts just like supposed to represent a group of people and I thought it would be I think a great way to introduce the general audience to this project that I've been working on and I was particularly interested in the Asafa flags because of their own history of these sort of different groups of militarized men who over time sort of like would make these flags and have these different sort of like narratives sort of woven and sewn into the flags to say this is who we are and this is what we stand for and if you're against us then you are either weaker than us or we are better than you and um, I thought it was sort of like a really strong point of view obviously it's very graphic very I think distinct very easily identifiable so it was kind of like a starting point so the first iteration of these paintings which I made two years ago I think sort of were a bit more similar to the flags but over time, they're sort of changing and becoming a bit more personal, a bit more surreal, just to sort of like provide a bit of essence of each of the characters that I've created. So they're a bit more personal, I think this time, a bit more specific to the characters and kind of moving a little bit away from the typical like imagery you would see in a Safo flag, but sort of still pulling a little bit of the visual imagery from it so you can kind of see the connections between them. And is it right that the characters relate to kind of belief systems and ideas of sort of god women effectively yeah so i've really been interested in masquerade societies and the fact that they're not that many run exclusively by women so i basically just created my own mythology and referenced like the vodun cosmology and also historically they're the, they're called the minot warriors who are these women who defended the dahomey king which is present-day benin and I just pulled sort of information from history and from sort of tradition and culture and just sort of like remix it a little bit to suit what I'm interested in doing. But the idea is that they are all sort of referencing something that has happened in the past, but I've made them a bit more contemporary to sort of suit what is sort of happening now. To what extent do you see them as a political statement? To what extent would they be seen as a political statement? I mean, of course, this maybe everything is kind of sort of a political statement, I would say, but is they're really personal. And in a way, they are kind of women that I would like to be myself, but maybe I don't really have the courage to do what I, I wish I could do. And I think that's what the idea of, you know, the masquerade and the concept of metamorphosis comes into play, is that, you know, the masquerade sort of allows you for whatever period of time to sort of become somebody else and sort of live a, a different type of life. 
it becomes some sort of intervention, which I'm really interested in, in the idea of clothing or wearing something and sort of transforming yourself into someone else. And I guess that is political in a way, because what you wear is a way to sort of say, this is who I am. This is how I want to be viewed. This is how I want to be perceived. This is, you know, and I think that's political in, in itself. And the fact that clothing and the way we look and the way we present ourselves in Ghana is such a big deal. I think it sort of ties in anyway. And I'm also interested in how it relates to similar traditions or performance traditions particularly across the African diaspora. Do you associate it with a broader sort of pan-African kind of context? Yeah, so I really didn't want it to be like a Ghanaian group of mythological society. It's supposed to be a secret society. So I am sort of pulling from I think the larger West African and Central African history of masquerading and they are very varied I think and very different histories so I'm not sort of trying to say this is like all supposed to be one thing but I basically I'm you know picking and choosing what I think is like works for what I'm trying to do it's kind of like a how do I say a work in progress as I'm researching exercising creative uh, freedom and just sort of like pulling stuff that I think works within the context of what I'm doing but it's still sort of referencing the larger historical idea that a lot of these masquerades have you know historically excluded women and I'm sort of like trying to get at that and say okay I'm trying to do something that sort of inserts women back into the narrative a bit. And then lastly I caught a glimpse around the corner looking into the pavilion as it's being installed it's still not quite there (laughs) but I just caught a glimpse of the twinkles of of your beaded uh, sculpture hanging sculpture tell us more about that so that sculpture the installation is based off of one of the characters the blue one of the painting I think that is what was used as the press image for the pavilion Um, this particular character sort of focused on the idea of a woman who is in total control of her body both sexually and just like physically but also who has access to her body and so this character is always associated with the color blue but also visually either has like a type of wall or fence or sort of a, a screen of sorts to kind of make a physical delineation between the character herself and the audience and showing in a way that you can see her but you can't sort of reach her and just basically the installation is supposed to sort of represent that idea but I've always been interested in, and I do try to incorporate it into my more sort of sculptural and dimensional works, an element of interaction. I really love people being able to sort of touch the work and sort of move through the work and sort of experience it in a completely different way than just being able to see it. Um, so that's sort of part of the reason why it's sort of centered and it has a 360 degree accessibility, I would say. And the idea is that people have to sort of labor a little bit slowly and carefully through the glass beads to get to the center to sort of encounter the sculpture that is supposed to represent this particular character. Coming up, we review Cicili Alemani's Venice Biennale exhibition, The Milk of Dreams, and pick out other Biennale highlights. Plus, I talk to Ben Street about Giovanni Bellini. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. In Venice, there have been some late additions to the Biennale reflecting on the war in Ukraine. A work by the self-taught Ukrainian artist Maria Primachenko was hastily added to the Biennale's main exhibition, The Milk of Dreams, while a temporary pavilion or piazza for Ukraine, made in scorched wood, has been erected in the Giardini in order to bring the plight of Ukraine to the heart of the event. The architect of the project is the Ukrainian Dana Kosmina, who herself fled Kiev at the start of the Russian invasion. 
Meanwhile, dozens of Russian paintings are reported to be stranded in South Korea as a result of Western sanctions limiting flights out of the country. At least four Russian institutions are thought to have loaned the pieces, including the Nizhny Novgorod State Art Museum and the Ekaterinburg Museum of Fine Arts. The works are thought to have been part of a major exhibition of Russian avant-garde art at the Sejong Museum of Art in Seoul. The show displayed a total of 75 pieces by around 50 renowned artists, including Kandinsky's improvisations, Mikhail Larionov's Venus, and pieces by Natalia Goncharova and Alexander Rochenko. And finally, Hermann Nitsch, the founding member of Viennese Actionism, a movement known for its violent, ritualistic performances that often confronted moral taboos, died on the 18th of April at the age of 83. His death was confirmed to the Austrian press by his wife Rita Nitsch, who says that the artist died following an unspecified serious illness. You can read all these stories and more, including an extensive guide to the Biennale and the latest reviews and reports from Venice on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Founded in 1766, Christie's is a world-leading art and luxury business. Renowned and trusted for its expert live and online auctions, as well as its bespoke private sales, Christie's offers a full portfolio of global services to its clients, including art appraisal, art financing and education. Experience Christie's Private Sales, a seamless service for buying and selling art, jewellery and watches outside of the auction calendar, working exclusively with Christie's specialists at a client's individual pace. Browse, bid, discover and join Christie's for the best of art and luxury at christies.com or by downloading Christie's apps. Welcome back. Now, in February, I spoke to the artistic director of this year's Venice Biennale, Cecilia Alamani, on this podcast, and she outlined the thinking behind her exhibition, The Milk of Dreams. And it finally opened to the media and VIPs this week, ahead of the public opening on Saturday. I spoke to Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent, and Jane Morris, our editor-at-large, about the show and some of their other Biennale highlights. I'll begin with you, Louisa. One of the things that we heard from Cecilia a lot ahead of this was about time capsules, these historic moments that are dotted throughout the show. How did they work? I think they work extremely well because they're these small, almost like historical museum sections. One devoted to, it's called Witch's Cradle, another one's devoted to Spiritual, another one to The Vessel, another one to Cyborg. I mean, they've got these special themes, but within them are other artists' works, earlier artists' works, but also documentation, ephemera, even little snippets of film. And they, in a way, act like the kind of the seedbeds that then spread out and you see the contemporary work in the show striking wonderful chords and resonances with the historical work, perhaps not specifically, but some a similarity in spirit. So you've got this sense of usually sisterhood, because it's predominantly female, a sense of sisterhood through generations, nationalities, continents. Right. And Jane, they're sort of given an architectural structure, which is different to the rest of the show, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea was probably to get a sense of more expansive areas in the main show and then these very compressed, smaller areas. So what you tend to have is much more large, dramatic scale work in the great big rooms. And then in these differently designed architectural capsules, so uh, in the Arsenale, one is around and works like uh, small sculptures and ceramics are inserted into glass vitrines that you can see from either side of the round. The surrealist one has a very sort of thick pile carpet and it's yellow and it's underground. Each capsule has its own colourway and feel in materials. The work generally is much smaller. 
Obviously, some of it is truly museum quality work. So some of it is in cases and vitrines. So there's a very different feel to these very sort of compressed museum-like spaces. And then you move out into the much larger Giardini and Arsenale spaces where you get large-scale work. But you get an incredible sense of release, don't you? Because you've got this great room in the Giardini pavilion called Witch's Cradle, where you literally have an underground, well, it feels like it's an underground cavern, with, you know, old surrealists, Eileen Agar, Ithel Cahoon, amazing people. People I didn't know as well. Jane Gravero does a sort of techno sphinx collage, little snippets of Josephine Baker channeling the exotic. And then out you go into this amazing room with Mirelina Mukherjee, those fantastic, huge macrame goddesses from this recently deceased Indian artist. And of course, the great pin-up lady of the whole sort of Milk of Dreams exhibition, Cecilia Verhuna, who makes these glorious paintings with eyes, animals, hybrids. And she's also got this kind of floating bits of detritus hanging like a glorious mobile through the whole space. And in a way, you feel like that the witchy chamber has fired into these two very different artists from very different nationalities. One of the things about having the time capsules is, of course, as you say, when you go out into the bigger exhibition, you then have big set pieces. And I think that works really well. For instance, you have the Katerina Fritsch elephant as the first room in the Giardini, and then you have the Simone Lee sculptures in the entrance to the Arsenale. It seems to me that that's the sort of micro-macro, large-scale, small-scale thing is really carefully balanced, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a real problem. Anyone who's been here before, and for people who haven't, but anyone who's been here before knows that the two exhibition spaces that the director gets... So one is the pavilion in the Giardini, which is a maze of weird shaped rooms. And then in the Arsenale, you have these enormous cavernous Renaissance industrial spaces, which are very difficult to deal with. And I think what's been very interesting with Cecilia, she's spent most of her career recently, last 10 or so years, working on the High Line. So working outdoors, she has not had a huge amount of experience with these kind of difficult museum spaces, but she does have experience using industrial space. And I think it's really shown to me anyway, that she's really thought about how do you grab somebody at the beginning? So that's the Katerina Fritsch, the huge green elephant. So she's made a really good start in both sets of spaces. But as I say, there is a definite sense of pace and rhythm throughout the show. So we get these large set pieces, then we get rooms where often two or three artists are put together in dialogue with each other. Then you get these very compressed capsules and then certainly in the arsenale it also finishes with a big sort of installation as a high i think she's handled the space really well and i think we haven't had as much of a fatigue as you sometimes get sometimes particularly in the arsenale i think you get about halfway and you start to think when is this going to end and with this one i didn't have that actually it it kept me going it's a bit like breathing in and out in a way you kind of breathe in for all these very intense vitrines with lots of source material, documentation, peering in, artists you often really don't know, historical. Then, for example, with the vessel one, there are all these amazing vessels. Um, and then, then you have this Rufa Sawa as well, giving a bit of airiness, but yeah. sort of some beautiful meshes. But then you breathe out, and there's, you know, Madeleine Odundo's a quartet of fantastic pots, almost striking poses against a white wall. And then that am- 
amazing Delcy Morelos, the Colombian artist, making this great big labyrinthine maze out of soil that's impregnated with spices. So suddenly you're in this big, all-encompassing piece of sort of female land art. You know? Yeah, and it's, it's very much that piece, isn't it? It's like a sort of female, non-white European response to Walter de Maria's earth room because it smells of coffee. And, it, and it's only and waist it's... high, so you're not sort of engulfed in some kind of, you know, tide of masculinity with these gorgeous smells. It's almost like being in some delicious kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And let's talk about Delcy Morelos more because I think in some ways it's sort of emblematic of lots of the work in the sense that a few people have muttered to me that this isn't a political show. It's a show which is very fantastical. It's very rich in a kind of figuration which perhaps links to art that may not have been seen as political in the past. But I do think, I'm sorry to be gendery about this, but it seems to be the blokes that object to this. Women seem to love this show. And I think, you know, Milk of Dreams, it's about the representation of bodies, their metamorphosis, the representation of individuals, technologies, the connection between bodies and the earth, and I'm paraphrasing Shachila Almani's statement here. And there is a lot of intuitive, subconscious, fantastical, imaginary, but I think it's very much about taking refuge in the imagination what the body can do. We are living in these terrible times, but we don't really want more polemical, finger-wagging, obviously didactic art. This is a fantastically, I think, political show about what the body can do, what the imagination can do, what refuge we can take in our imaginations. And I think, you know, I'm just leaping out into a pavilion here, but Francis Salis's Belgian pavilion is all about children's games, even in war zones. The fact that, you know, there is this incredible human resourcefulness. And there are also some amazing figures in this show. I mean, in the vitrines, in the capsules, there's one, Aletta Jacobs, I'd never heard of her before. She was the first doctor in Denmark. She set up birth control clinics and she also made beautiful wax images of in utero figures. There's another artist, Anna Coleman Ladd, who was a brilliant sculptor in her own right, a classical sculptor, and then she went to Paris and helped make prostheses for World War I disfigured people. So, you know, these amazing women doing stuff. So I'm ranting a bit, but I think it's so political and I get really cross when people just want it to be endlessly about the pandemic or Ukraine. You know, these terrifying things that are happening now, or indeed the environment in a finger-waggy way. It's all about the environment. I mean, as is evidenced by the Delcy Morales that we've just been talking about. I mean, I certainly think it's political with a small p, and like you, Louisa, I think that is refreshing. I mean, it's political in the sense of the choice of the artist, isn't it? I mean, there's 200, 213 artists, I think, in the exhibition. 90% are women or identify as women, and that's never, ever happened before. I mean, I think even gender parity is very, very unusual at the Biennale. Mm. So that's in itself making a statement. There are a lot of artists from non-central Western European or North American countries. There are Latin American artists, there are Sami artists, there's artists from Africa, there's artists from the Middle East. That's making a statement as well. There are certain themes, I think, running all the way through it that are also political. And one is definitely about gender and identity. Mm. Another theme, I think, very much is colonisation and indigenous voices. And as you mentioned, the environment. So these themes run throughout it. And I think Cecilia Alemani said that, I mean, almost in a joke, that she imagined it as the antithesis of Leonardo's Vitruvian man. So not the man at the centre of the universe, not the rational man controlling and shaping the world. And I think that all of this show sort of stems from that idea. So, yeah, it, it's political, but it's not flag-waving. It's interesting because, to me... 
one of the key compelling elements of the show is it's very post. It's post-colonial. It's post-human. It is a very Anthropocene show. So it is deeply connected to the environment, isn't it, Louisa? There are so many ways in which this is imagining in all sorts of different ways, both in a productive way, but also in a kind of critical way, what happens from here. And, And of course, when you put that in the hands of artists, you get really extraordinary stuff. And you get extraordinary kind of, you know, animal, human morphing. And of course, that goes into indigenous communities. It, it riffs off, you know, alternative faith systems. You also have um, a little bit of a cyborg overload, I would say. I mean, <laughs> at the end, there is a sudden sort of massive, oops, you've got to do a bit more technology here. And uh, that's perhaps just because I'm an old dinosaur myself. I found that slightly kind of grated with me. But yes, there is a sense very much about the body being the starting point. But boy, is it a departure point as well. And the female body, again, if I'm being a bit grumpy, I'm going hang up my feminist hat for one second there's possibly a little bit too much womb magic going on here you know I, I have seen a lot of sort of you know female reproductive systems sprouting all kinds of things and that's great but actually I'd much rather have too much of that than not at all but yes it's it's very much about the body about post-human and interspecies there's figures acting out animal gestures becoming animals morphing into animals I mean there's there's an absolutely terrifying Mariana uh, Simnet piece where you see a furry tail sticking out from a velvet curtain you walk into this darkened space and view this video on this furry tail-like form cushion that cuts the space in two and it's all about animal human fetish tails being chopped off terrifying things going on I mean Bits of this Biennale are very hardcore. It's not all dreamy womb magic. A lot of it is actually really quite frightening and quite white knuckle. Exactly. I mean, curiously enough, that Mariana Simnet piece, when I went in there, there was a child watching it. And it really occurred to me, my God, we're actually seeing the milk of dreams happening in reality here because Leonora Carrington's story was written for her children but it's basically terrifying if you ask people who tried to read it to their kids it's kind of too scary but there I was watching Mariana Simnet and there's this little child utterly absorbed in this frankly quite nightmarish scene and it was really actually interesting seeing that happen in, in the reality. I mean let's not forget that the surrealists wanted to change society they were communists they wanted to overturn society they wanted the irrational to supplant the rational the mechanistic so a lot of that kind of playfulness and dark playfulness and serious political intent runs through as you said Jane it runs through this show in many many interconnected ways. I think what Cecilia Alemani said, which was very interesting, she had longer than normal to prepare this show. You know, artistic directors normally two years, but they don't get two years because there's a period before they're announced and then they've got to get out of their day job and so forth. So a lot of directors in the past have said they've really got nine months to put together a show. And as a result, they kind of have an idea and they have to run with it. Because she had this extended period because of the pandemic and she was able to interview a lot of artists over Zoom. And she said that a lot of these themes came from talking to the artists. And I do actually believe that because I, I mean, she must have had some directing ideas, but I do believe that because I think we do see echoes of some of these themes in other exhibitions around Venice and in the pavilions and in other places. And it seems that we've just come to a moment where a lot of people have been in this introspective mode thinking very much, as I say, about things like identity and the imagination. And of course, people have been locked up for a long time. But these ideas predated the pandemic. I think we're just not in a period of big, shouty, large scale, show off kind of work. 
I mean, let's hear it for slow curating. Let's hear it for the fact that she did have the time to do this extraordinary research. And let's also hear it for technology, where she did gazillion Zoom studio visits. If she'd been in the pre-pandemic world, flying around on a jet, burning a huge carbon hole, by the way, she wouldn't have been able to see physically all these artists. So I think this show is greatly enriched and greatly expanded and internationalised by the fact that she was only doing it online and she was having this extra time to sit and think and I just hope that actually other curators will take note that you don't need to be zipping around the world and you don't need to have this quick turnover of shows and this last minute dot com sort of activity and also the ambivalence we now all feel about the machine because Zoom of course made so much stuff possible but also we were stuck behind our screens I think comes through the show this dystopian machine cyborg the optimism that we have for technology but also the deep pessimism and fear but it's also something that I realised in terms of that slow curating thing how incredibly tightly curated it is one of the things is everybody does these shows in different ways the way I did it was I sort of blocked it out so I did two hours in the Giardini and then two hours in the Arsenale and then did them both in detail what was really interesting to me is that often the blocking out thing you think there's a coherence and then when you go into detail that unravels with this it got more intense I saw so many lovely visual connections material connections in the Giardini itself and into the Arsenale between the two different sites. It's so tightly curated, such a coherent argument, and yet there's so many ideas, and that seems to me to be an extraordinarily difficult balance to strike. Because she's had time to edit down. I mean, I know that I splurge out copy, and if I'm in a hurry, it remains verbose and awful with crudely hacked. The fact is, if you've got more time, you can actually refine what you're saying. You can think, actually, no, I really don't need to say that. That's, you know, I think, and she's done that. I mean, just even the extraordinary kind of combination of, of the Anna Coleman lad prosthesis medical sculpture, if you like, next door to Hannah Hoch collages of grotesque faces. They were opposing the very war that her processes were then healing. You know, it's fascinating combinations come out through deep thought, I think. Yeah, and I think both shows, the Giardini and the Arsenale, they do have a similar rhythm, don't they, in that they tend to start with the more indigenous, surreal ideas and in both cases morph towards the technology. And as you say, you do start to see echoes between different works. I mean, that was actually one of the risks of the time capsules, wasn't it, as an aside? It's not that easy to curate historic work next to contemporary work. And the bigger that gap gets in time, the more difficult it gets. Now, most of the works in the time capsules are, what, 20s, 30s, 40s. So it's not a massive gap. It's not going back you know, into the 19th century. Or sort of, you know, ancient sculpture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I was wondering how that was going to work and I did actually think it was very successful. What I also think really works is the fact that when contemporary artists or near-contemporary artists are represented, it's in depth. There's always several works at a time, you know. It's not just one here, one there. So you've got this sense of a body of work and, I mean, sometimes they're actually given almost like chapel-like spaces. I'm thinking very much of the Paula Rego space here. Yeah, that was great, actually. You know, and there she is with her dog women pastel paintings, these abject women crouching, but also these terrifying models that she's been making recently. And one for the vice of gluttony, it's this great big foul woman eating chunks off babies. You know, I mean, they're all made in sort of squishy, squashy sort of toy form, so they're made innocent, but they're not innocent. And, you know, these darkness, the witchiness, the figurativeness, the bodily, the abject, all these things come through, and the surreal, of course. And I also thought in that room, which was really interesting, there is a really disturbing picture of a I suppose, a young woman with an older woman. The older woman is helping the younger woman put on some frilly 
pants. Gazing at the crotch. And it's mm. it's a most disturbing and uncomfortable... Snow White and her stepmother. ...image, yes. And I like the fact that although there is a lot of the celebration of the female or the feminine and the other, I like the fact there's really uncomfortable moments like that one because in that image, you know, the elder woman, what's going on there? It looks very humiliating and controlling. And, and I thought that was, a, for me, a standout work in the show and a standout room. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think even you know, with, with the Marini Mukherjee, the great big macrame sculptures with their sort of you know, hobbly-bobbly genitals... They're terrifying. They're horrible. You would not want to meet them in a dark or light night, you know. So I think there is, as always, there's a sort of flipping side. It's not whimsical, this show, and it really could be. It's not hippie. It really could be. I think, you know, she keeps it dark. She keeps it risky. She keeps it, she plays with good and bad taste really brilliantly, I think. There were really nice associations materially through the show. For instance, in one room, you've got Solange Pessoa's a line of very beautiful graphic drawings, which is sort of human vegetation morphing into each other. And then you have Prabhakarpachpute, this really long landscape, which is all about the kind of devastation of mining on the human and animals. It also looks like an Indian Salvador Dali as well. well. Precisely, yeah. Again, the ripples of all the historic stuff coming through. But both are sort of effectively drawings but are done in such different ways you have you know this sort of pencil and acrylic painting by Pachpute which is nothing like Solange Pessoa's use of this incredibly graphic black language but actually it's just this wonderful kind of toing and froing of materials and ideas that I just loved all the way through. Well two artists that work really closely to my mind in aesthetically but one in two dimension one in three dimension the Christina Quarles her amazing body stretched moved morphed what it's like to be in a gender fluid you know abject body that we all inhabit as well doing all its strange bodily stuff brilliantly in paintings and then Hannah Levy's extraordinary fetishistic sculptures that are also a bit membrane yeah. and pointy sitting on shiny metal toes but then there's a great big carved peach stone in beautiful marble but of course peaches have poison in their centre so there's always this kind of lovely rippling of intent I think absolutely and, and also the sort of associations you get then between rooms because there's a room of Birgit Jorgensen's drawings in one of the final rooms and those relate very much back to Hannah's work and so that's what I mean about the sort of ripples of of form and idea that just come from one room in one space and then you might see it again sort of and and hark back to it when you're right over the other side of Venice in the Arsenal. What I did like which you started to both touch on I think was it's a very material show isn't it? You want to touch a lot of things This has been put together, I think, with someone who's got a real eye for painterliness, for beautiful surfaces or interesting surfaces. So the squelchy mud, there's beautifully soft eggshell-like porcelain. You find yourself wanting to touch things. You find yourself looking at paintings and thinking about how they might have been made. So for people who love the materiality of art, this is a wonderful show. And of course, you've got every sense going on here. You've got the eyes, you've got the ears, you've got the nose, whether it's Delcy Morelos or Precious Okoyamon's last great extraordinary experience where you walk out through this marvellous garden, this extraordinary sort of blighted paradise tripping over over stones that go over brooks and with these strange figures inhabiting, almost seem to growing into and out of a proper planted landscape. They're butterflies I saw flying around yeah, in there. Yeah, exactly. But again, that's an example of this kind of licence that the artists have to create these kind of fantasy worlds 
worlds that deeply connect to a distant past. And in this case, for instance, there is sugarcane in that garden. So it inevitably connects back to enslaved peoples. And, and again, that's something that's really elastic in this show, isn't it? Time, the nature of time. And the fact that it ends with a really young artist, a young gender-fluid artist who's also a poet, artist and a chef. You know, I love that all these categories become so porous. These really hard, dare I say, patriarchal categories that are so rigid now become much more fluid. Now, I know that all three of us have spent most of our time in Venice in the main show, so I'm not expecting you to have seen all that Venice has to offer, because how many shows are there, Jane? Oh, it's unbelievably enormous. I mean, the main show itself is enormous. It's got over 1,400 works of art in it. I think we said 213 artists, which is high even by Biennale standards. On top of that, there's 80 pavilions. (laughs) There's 30 what are called collateral exhibitions, which are exhibitions that the Biennale has given a sort of official tick to. (laughs) There's 56 other exhibitions. And on top of that, there's nearly 50 museums, foundations, galleries and art spaces that are always here in Venice that have all put on exhibitions. I don't know how long it would take you to get through all of those. I don't think you could see all of that in three months if you did it as a full-time job. So we've done two days. So with that in mind... (laughs) With with that in mind, let's pick a few examples each. I'll start with you, Louisa. What have your highlights been? Well, I'm going to do a shout out for Sonia Boyce, first of all, in the British Pavilion. That's great. And the Belgian Pavilion has Francis Alice celebrating child's play. And I'm going to do one more, which is a shout out to Romania, which is an extraordinary pavilion. And this is Adina Pintale, who's made this really remarkable celebration of the body of sex in bodies that people don't conventionally associate with sex, that's tender, it's gorgeous, it's humanising, and it's staying with me as I sit here now. I have to say I completely agree about Romania. I think that is actually one of the standout pavilions. I also think that the Francis Alice is a great pavilion. Not so sure about Britain, I have to say. I do very much like the Simone Lee, though, the US pavilion. I couldn't agree Um, more. She's installed these uh, large-scale sculptures into the US pavilion. I think she's also the first black American woman to represent the US. And it's powerful, but it's also formally very satisfying. Her sculptures look great in that space and they're beautifully installed. And she's thatched the American pavilion, a neoclassical snooty pavilion based on a a slave plantation is covered in African thatch. How cool is that? My shelter is for Stan Douglas. Listen to a brush with. Hang on for that interview in June. The Canadian pavilion itself has got photographs in it but I think the real highlight in terms of the Canadian pavilion is actually not in the pavilion itself but far away on Dorsoduro where there's this extraordinary call and response between grime artists in London and then rappers in Cairo and you've got this enormous thunderous exchange based on this idea of unrest at a certain moment in time as always it's got enormous historical complexity but it's just such a powerful video installation as Stan Douglas's video installations often are. Yes I haven't seen that one yet I'm going to go to it after we've done this recording I think that Stan Douglas really stood out for me in Ralph Rugoff's 2019 Biennale and I think I'm really excited to see to see this one. Interesting actually how many of the videos, which isn't normally my first pick, I have to say, but the videos in the pavilions seem to be what's really struck us, you know, particularly 
Belgium, Romania and and Canada. Yeah, I, th- I definitely think it's interesting that because we all agree on France's Elise, I haven't seen Romania yet, but it definitely seems that that's the buzz. You know, when whenever you are in Venice, there's always the buzzy pavilions and it seems that both Romania and Belgium have been the ones that I've heard lots of people say, that's amazing. So, yeah, maybe they're golden lion contenders, I think. Well, it's always exciting when there's something you don't know. And I mean, the Romanian pavilion, I don't know this artist. I hadn't thought seriously about this subject. It's so political. It's so important. It's so bodily and it's so taboo busting and I just think you know what more do you want from art it's also very beautiful as well it it is a tough watch though isn't it it is intense and quite moving but it's it's a tough watch I think I I mean yes and that it really disturbed me and, and unsettled me in a really good way and you know you're seeing people having sex not graphically you don't see genitals flying around but you know they are having sex they are getting on down and they're in bodies that you often wouldn't immediately think about getting on down together and that's great yeah. Let's very briefly touch on some wider shows across Venice. I'm going to begin with Marlene Dumas, which is this show called Open End at the Palazzo Grassi. It's even better than the Tate Modern show a few years back, which I actually loved. It really is a stunning show. It is exhausting in the sense that Marlene is such an intense painter. She paints geopolitical subjects. She paints the incredible human personal subjects. She is just an unbelievable painter both technically and in terms of her conceptual approach and this is I think an absolute must see and a really interesting counterpoint to all the big male artists all all across town you know and I think that show is pretty unbeatable I have to say. I can't wait to see it (laughs) top of my hit list almost as soon as I walk out of this room. Talking of female counterparts lots of machismo there is Anselm Kiefer being a big bloke in the Doge's palace taking on Tintoretto. There's Anish Kapoor being all kind of woomy and really annoying um, with lots of blood and sort of vaginas he hasn't got one how dare he Um, in the academia and another palazzo and to counter all that kind of menopausal male nonsense I'm gonna bring in my top tip really which is Fiona Banner's brilliant film it's called pranayama organ it's about breathing that's that's the pranayama thing but actually what it is is two enormous inflatable decoy jet fighters um one's a falcon one's called typhoon so you get the typhoon thing and they're inflating and deflating and inflating and deflating like breathing these vast floppy but fantastically macho because they're fighter jets the big pointy fronts on a beach in the middle of nowhere then two figures start wearing these costumes of the fighters they're doing a sort of love dance and elegy it's the most extraordinary film in a children's playground you know so you've got this sense this big video but it's not macho it's tender it's elegiac and a bit ridiculous and quite doomy as well it's extraordinary There are a gazillion more things for us to see over the next couple of days, but thank you for summarising what you have seen so eloquently Jane and Louisa, thank you very much Thank you very much Thank you The Venice Biennale opens tomorrow, the 23rd of April, and continues until the 27th of November. And you can hear my interview with Cecilia Alemani in the episode of this podcast from the 4th of February. On our sister podcast, A Brush With, meanwhile, you can hear interviews with some of the artists who feature in Cecilia's show, Christina Qualls, Alison Katz and Ali Sherry. You can find all our podcasts wherever you're listening now. 
And finally, it's time for this episode's work of the week. As the art world descends on the Biennale and immerses itself in contemporary art, it can often feel like the city's extraordinary historical art is being ignored. So we wanted to end this episode by looking at one of its great Renaissance masters. In San Giovanni Crisostomo, a small church near the Rialto Bridge, is Giovanni Bellini's painting of the saints Christopher, Jerome and Louis of Toulouse. I went to the church with the art historian Ben Street to explore this wonderful late masterpiece. So we're standing in a church just very near the Rialto. I'm here with Ben Street and it's an extraordinary work by Bellini made for this church which is still in place and that's one of the wonders of Venice is that you can just stop off in a church and see works by the great masters right there as they were intended to be. Ben, why are we talking about this work? Well this is a rare example of a painting by Bellini that's in situ. You know, it was made for this church. It's very, very late. One of the last paintings Bellini made. And Bellini was actually much better known for making small-scale Madonna and child paintings that were distributed across households in Venice. So it's a large-scale painting by Bellini. So it's kind of a rarity, really, in many ways. That's right. And as you say, it's a very late painting. One of the wonders about the very late period, of course, is that he's taught Giorgione and Titian by this time. He's seen them ascend and yet he's still the great master and of course one of the great things that we have in as a document is Durer saying you know he's very old but mm. he's still the best effectively yeah. and and this in terms of his late style it really is a stunning painting isn't yeah it? it's amazing really because this is painted about 1513 so Bellini was probably in his 80s although it's really hard to tell with the documentation we have but it's a painting that in the past has been attributed to Sebastian del Piombo who's also got another painting in this church it's been attributed to strangely enough Giorgio and you look at it now it looks nothing like Giorgione in actual fact you know in a way artists like Giorgione have eclipsed Bellini by this point they've moved painting into a totally different realm in terms of how you use paint how you use canvas and how you think about content so Bellini's work strangely enough is slightly out of sync with its time which again is also really interesting I think I mean it's a painting that was commissioned by Michael Deletti, I think that's right. He died before the painting was finished. He was commissioned like a really long time before it yeah, was completed, wasn't it? it, it? Was sort commission- of 20 years or Something so. like 20 years before. I mean, he wanted to secure a commission from the, the most famous and successful painter in Venice at the time. He died, and Bellini seems to have made changes to the original design for his altarpiece, but, you know, there was no way he was going to complain about it at that point, so he got away with it, I suppose. But it's a painting that belongs to a very particular kind of idea of how you represent saints, which we refer to as a sacra conversazione, which is something which is not necessarily just a Venetian idea, but it's something that I feel is really perfected in a way in Venice, because a sacra conversazione is a bringing together of disparate entities, saints who are not historically congruent you know that they lived at different times but you put them together in an altarpiece and you kind of suggest the fact that they're having some sort of mystical communion with each other and that's communicated in Bellini I think through gesture and pose but also through light and of course in this painting we don't have a virgin and child as you often do in a sacra conversazione yeah how unusual is that quite unusual for Bellini yeah it's quite strange really because it's a centralized composition but at the center there's a figure who we would expect the person to be looking out at us and making some sort of appeal to us perhaps or or building a bridge maybe between them and us as a virgin and child would do but instead what we have in the center is a a man locked in contemplation who's very physically 
far from us or geographically far from us you know he's got his head down and he's contemplating a book and this is saint jerome this is saint jerome and he's this beautiful way in which there's a tree which forms a natural lectern on which the book sits so saint jerome is who was one of the forefathers of the church you know in an early translator of the bible so really really important for the development of the christian church but also more importantly in a way a kind of embodiment of a life of contemplation because it's a painting that i think has it has three saints and each one of them sort of embodies a certain way of being I it's guess. a sort of theological discussion isn't it it's in a the theological discussion exactly exactly the, the whole space is framed by this fictive arch it's a round topped arch Behind the round topped arch, there's a marble wall. Behind the wall, there's a landscape, and there's a rocky outcrop. And on top of the rocky outcrop is St. Jerome. But if you come back to the front, just inside the arch are these two much larger figures who are nearer to us. As we face the altarpiece, on our left is St. Christopher, who's got the Christ child on his back. And on our right is St. Louis of Toulouse, who is the Franciscan saint, um, dressed in his bishop's robes. And, you know, it's quite clear that these two men, who don't look at or talk to each other, because it's a sacra conversazione, they, they can't really be seen to interact, I suppose, is that they represent different ideas of the spiritual life, I guess. So, you know, St. Christopher is like, tanned and rangy, and he's got his big stick, and he's, yeah. he looks like a backpacker, or he looks like a, an outward-bound kind of guy. And he is the active life, the physical life, the life of the body, I guess, and the life of the missionary, too, I suppose, in Christian terms. And then, you know, St. Louis, he's got this brilliantly melancholy expression looking out of the painting to the right as we look at it. Mm. Is this sort of life of the mind or life of the soul? And so you have this idea of it being an embodied theological argument. It's amazing. And then in the background, Jerome, who sort of is the kind of apex to which you might aspire, I guess, this kind of complete life of the mind. So it's really fascinating painting because it exhorts the person looking at it to consider the way that they live their life. It's about yourself. So obviously it was commissioned on those grounds, of course. So, you know, it was absolutely meant to be. But this is one of the things that Renaissance painters are so brilliant at is animating the kind of theological debates of their time. You think about the dispute by Raphael or whatever, and here we have Bellini doing the same sort of thing. He's just sort of saying, okay, so these are the arguments of my era. (laughs) These are the things that people are talking about. How do I turn that into something which a parishioner is going to come to this church and understand and engage with? Exactly. And of course, you know, that only works because Bellini's work is so deeply involved with real life. Like, it works because the figures are drawn from the real faces and bodies of real people, and it's lit by the same light that lights you as you walk through Venice. You know, that's that really distinctive thing about Bellini, which he really finesses in his late work, I think, which is this, like, honey-coloured soft light, which anyone who's been to Venice will be very familiar with a certain very particular quality of light that Venice has. And, of course, you know, Monet, Turner, you know, you name it, been led to Venice because of that Mm. but for Bellini what happens is it just makes the relationship between your life in the city and the life of the saints in the painting like it brings them closer together the separation between art and life is made very thin you know so that's what's happening I think absolutely and as you say it's again always with the renaissance the gazes are so wonderful so the Christ child is looking directly at us as he sits on St Christopher's shoulders Jerome is immersed in his book and as you say there's St Louis looking as you say sort of rather melancholily out to the side and again that's a very interesting form of a painter 
talking about engaging with audience, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're anticipated by the painting, you know, and that's a great innovation of Renaissance painting is the idea that the viewer, you know, a long time before Marcel Duchamp, the viewer is always an active component of the painting, right? The viewer has to be there in order for the painting to kind of click into life. And that's really, really visible here too i think and um, can we talk about some of the details i love one of the curious details is that st louis was identified as saint augustine yeah. for some time because it seems that somebody at some point had repainted over the top of the book which he holds that it's saint augustine's book yeah. but actually it's not because it's the back of the book apart from anything else so yeah, there's exactly. this kind of curious sort yeah. of addendum but basically how do we know it's saint louis well we know it's saint louis because there are french fleur-de-lis designs on his robes and he was a French Franciscan saint. Medieval, right? Medieval, yeah. I mean, I suspect Bellini didn't know about this one, but the most famous precursor to this representation of Louis is Donatello. Mm. But as I say, I'm not sure he knew it. I don't think he went to Florence. But nevertheless, there's a famous sculpture by Donatello of St. Louis, very similar, very fresh-faced, youthful, wearing this bishop's coat, which I think he... Like any Franciscan at the time, he was uncomfortable with the trappings of the material world. So the bishop's robes looked too big for him. They looked too heavy. He looks like a child that's gone into like the costume cupboard and put the costume on. There's a little bit of that in the Bellini too. Definitely in the Donatello. But there's a little bit here as well. So that's how we can identify. He's got his bishop's crook. Hmm. So that's how we know it's Louis. You know, Louis very much embodies you know, a complete commitment to the spiritual life. But having him in Bishop's Robe also, of course, connects him to the church, capital C, like in a wider sense. Right. So it connects the church, this particular church we're in right now, to a wider sense of the church's mission. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this particular church we're in right now was at the centre of a Greek community who yeah. would come and worship here. And that explains that in the arch, which is, in, it's actually pretty gloomily lit at the moment, so we can't see in very great detail, but, but there is Greek text yeah. on the arch. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a Greek community... And it's a Greek cross church. And it's a small church, you know, I mean, in this kind of squad, but it's full of amazing Sebastiano del Piombo altarpiece and another altar by Tullio Lombardo, great Venetian sculptor. So it's um, really incredibly rich. But, you know, the Greek inscription really embeds it within the lives of the people that came here. And it always also, for us, you know, as, as kind of great art fans, we can hop from church to church searching for Bellinis and Titians and things. But you know, if you were living in this neighbourhood when this painting was made in the early 16th century, this is probably the only church you'd ever go to. Yeah. And you, the whole of your life, the movements of your life was fully shaped by this building. Your birth, your marriage, your death, your illnesses, your financial troubles, like everything is super intertwined with this building, this experience, and the paintings and the sculptures that are inside it. That's wonderful. And lastly, I wanted to ask about speculative question. Right. Is that a self-portrait of Bellini in old age in the form of St. Jerome? Well, I mean... <laughs> he's, he's like 80 by this stage. He's, yeah, he's 80. probably early 80s by yeah. the time he completes it. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, so it is speculative. But here's what I'd say. If you are a man of that age... And remember, by the way, if he was truly 80, which, you know, might be true, he's 80 in 1513. He's not 80 in 2022. So, you know, it's a different idea of age. Like it's, And how do you make it so far without dying of plague or okay. whatever it might George be? George had done six years George only had done his, his young student. Uh, you know, so, so here's what I'd say. Uh, whether it's a self-portrait or not, I don't know. But there's no denying that the experience of painting an older man in contemplation looking down onto a flat object, which happens to be a book, but also could be a drawing or could be a painting, it's got to feel close to Bellini's experience, I would say. 
Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ben Street's book, How to Enjoy Art, A Guide for Everyone, is published by Yale University Press and priced £14.99 or $20. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentle and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Francis, Sonia, Shubigi, Na. Jane, Louisa and Ben and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.